This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Police violence remains a serious issue in spite of lowered news coverage. The number of people brutalized and killed by police continues to increase each year, with no end in sight and no federal plan to reduce violence. But in the wake of the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis in May 2020, a group of activists and thinkers articulated a clear eight-step plan to abolishing policing. One of them joins me now. She's Reina Sultan, co-creator of Hashtag 8 to Abolition and Associate Editorial Director at the Newsette. Welcome to the program, Reina. Hi, thank you for having me. So first, how did the plan come about? Um, I gave, you know, just the briefest timeline. It was around the summer of 2020 that I, I believe that the site went live. But what was the path to creating this eight-step plan? Mm -hmm. Well, the eight-step plan was really a, a small, condensed understanding of what abolition of both policing and the prison industrial complex would look like. And it was in direct response to another intervention that was introduced um, after the murder of George Floyd. Um, so there was a reformist agenda introduced called Eight Can't Wait, um, which was four, which was eight um, reforms that were suggested for cities to implement to reduce police violence by a certain percentage. Um, and many cities had already done these things. Um, in fact, Minneapolis had already had a lot of these in place before George Floyd was killed. And I was on Twitter um, in the wake of all of this. And a friend of mine had posted saying, hey, do any abolitionists want to get together and create a response to eight can't wait? So me and nine other people, I think, total got together and put together eight to abolition in like 24 hours almost. Um, we worked like through the night and came out with this intervention and it ended up going viral, which was not anticipated, but it seemed like a lot of people wanted kind of a taste of what abolition would look like and very clear demands that they could make to government officials um, or when they were in the streets protesting. And like I said, it's very condensed. It's not incorporating every single element of what abolition could look like. And there are a lot of schools of thought um, in abolition. And one of the reasons that it was easy for us to come together and put together all of this is because there's such a rich amount of work around abolition, written, video, whatever. Um, and most of that does come from Black women, queer scholars, and people who have spent a lot of time ideating around abolition. So we were able to draw from that rich history to put together Aid to Abolition in a short amount of time. Right. The ideas around uh, prison abolition and the abolition of policing go back decades at least. Mm -hmm. um, there's figures like, of course, Angela Davis and her book, I believe, is the 20th anniversary of our prisons obsolete this year. Mm. And, uh, and uh, of course, there's Ruthie Wilson Gilmore and many others. And the ideas of police abolition did become uh, something that could actually be, dis be discussed in the mainstream, which is 
kind of amazing that moment in 2020, right, where uh, major outlets were at least putting those words in their papers, even if they didn't necessarily follow through or necessarily take it seriously, they did talk about it, right, which is pretty big. Yeah, it was, it was kind of wild to see the differences from before abolition and after um because i had been writing about abolition before george floyd was murdered because obviously he was not the first person to be brutalized by police because policing is brutal and policing is violent and every single day people are being killed by police we're just not hearing about it so this was something that i had been writing about before um the summer of 2020 and it was wild the amount of people who were reaching out to me um as a journalist asking me to write about abolition after June 2020. Um, and I wish that there was still that much vigor and excitement in thinking about ways that we could break free from what we've considered as normal right now. So let's uh, talk about what those steps are, actually. Um, the first one might be the most controversial one, uh, because it's the one that has been most deeply misunderstood, and that's simply defund police. Uh, defund police is an idea that is not very complicated to explain, but it's something that gets turned into a very convenient talking point for the right. How do you explain it? you know, in a brief way, the sort of nutshell explanation. Yeah, so what's great about it is that it's really in the name. Um, defund police means defund police. It doesn't mean anything else. There's been a lot of injecting from both the right and like the neoliberal wings of the government that defunding the police means a bunch of other things. But what it means is taking money out of the police budget and diverting it to different things. So um, a lot of abolitionist scholars, Mariam Kaba included, call policing and prisons death-making institutions. And we want to take money from the death-making institutions and put them into life-giving services. So things that would actually support people rather than put them through violence. So that's, um, again, something that gets uh, misunderstood. The idea is that, uh, that, that we divert funding um, but it's interpreted as let's just get rid of police and then, of course, nobody would be safe because safety and how we achieve safety is a big a point of debate. Uh, the second point in eight abolition is demilitarized communities. What does this mean? Many Americans might say, what do you mean demilitarized? We don't live in a war zone. I think that if someone says that they don't live in a war zone, they are probably living in an affluent community that hasn't been subject to the kind of policing that certain communities are subject to daily. Um, a lot of us were able to see this on television and in media during 2020 in a way that people who maybe had their eyes closed to this type of thing earlier, um, but we can see the police using literal military gear when they are suppressing protests, when they are policing communities. This has been going on for a very, very long time, but I think a lot of people didn't understand quite how intense this was until they were seeing literal tanks in their communities um, while they were protesting against police violence. But we could see the same thing in Ferguson. You could see the same type of thing like after Rodney King. It's not new, but I think people were not aware of it until recently.
and journalists uh, weren't as aware of it till they themselves were not only witness to the police brutality, but sometimes victim to it in 2020, mm-hmm. um, which is a testament to the mass movements and the m- mobilization, the historic mobilization that took place. Uh, let's talk about removing police from schools. This is step three in aid to abolition. Um, often we, again, don't think about our schools being policed, but they absolutely are, especially public schools in mm-hmm. low-income communities, right? Yeah. So this is something that has a lot of elements for why we should do something like this. Um, one of the reasons is that using the money that should be going to educating children to policing them is just a waste of funds. It's not helping kids. And also we know now that the school to prison pipeline is a very real phenomenon and that um, black and brown children as well as disabled children um, and poor children are often diverted from schooling into the criminal punishment system. And so removing police from schools and instead implementing real safety initiatives into schools would better serve children. And just as we misunderstand or just as there's this debate around what actually creates safety outside of schools in society in general, it seems as though there's that misunderstanding or debate over the issue within schools. If we wanted, you know, often uh, school shootings are the basis for injecting police into schools, uh, Mm -hmm. but um, we could just get rid of guns, (laughs) which are right. And I think that especially for that argument, it is an unfortunate truth that if you look at police stopping school shootings, they're not. So it's not something that is really such a valid argument because it's not police haven't been stopping school shootings. So we're clearly not becoming more safe with them in the schools. So um, we also should then go toward the next point in the eight to abolition uh, guidelines, steps uh, that will take us to abolition, which is the an older idea of freeing people from jails and prisons. Uh, abolishing prisons is a long time idea, um, and it's something that has seen some measure of uh, success in local areas. Right, there's been longstanding fights. In various cities, you know, places like L.A. where I am or Detroit, where people have worked to shut down jails, worked to reduce prison populations, and they're seeing some success, even if it's not getting much media coverage. Right. Why is that part of the plan to abolish police? Yeah. So um, in abolition, we're both wanting to abolish police and prisons, jails and places where people are being held against their will. And so this is obviously a really controversial point for a lot of people. They feel um, very confused about this. But the point of the matter is that putting people in cages is inhumane and it is not solving any of the problems that it purports to solve. So one thing that we can immediately do is decarcerate people from jails where they're being held pretrial. There is no good reason for people to be held when they have not even had a trial yet. And obviously I'm someone who believes that everyone should be free from jails and prisons, but sometimes these things take time. They're not going to happen overnight. So there are ways that we can push for this to happen in the immediate. Um, This also looks like clemency for people who are older or disabled. There's so many people who are chronically ill in prisons and jails who are being just brutalized by the pandemic and having such a hard time accessing care. And it's just 
completely inhumane to be keeping people in there, especially when governors and presidents have the power to be freeing people immediately. Right. So people are being jailed, uh, which is an assumption of guilt before being, uh, you know, having any trial. Uh, you're supposed to have the right to be innocent until proven guilty. Uh, there's all sorts of predatory practices, particularly around low income communities. But then prisons as a whole, state prisons is where the majority of the prison population, the incarcerated population lives. We also have a growing immigrant detention system, which I imagine is also part of what you discuss needing to reduce so when we talk about uh, 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 policing is connected to that whole system because that's the entry point right i mean people exactly. arrest police arrest people to send them to jails and then eventually prisons mm -hmm. exactly yeah so uh then let's talk about the criminalization of all sorts of things but particularly as it relates to poverty that's step five in the eight step plan repeal laws that criminalize survival explain this so this is a few different issues that kind of are summed up in this point it's both decriminalize things and repeal laws that punish people for stealing when they don't have enough money for food why should people be punished for their desperation when governments could solve that issue by feeding and housing people Another thing that is often criminalized is survival of domestic abuse or um, interpersonal violence. When women are going through experiences of sexual assault or being raped, they might defend themselves against the abuser and end up in prison. This happens very often. We've seen some pretty high profile cases of this happening recently um, of people being held against their will and then they kill the person who had been abusing them. and that is just self-defense there's no reason for people to be locked up for trying to do what it takes to survive um and this is just a really widespread issue and particularly as it relates to um women fighting for survival in like domestic abuse or sexual abuse scenarios um survived and punished is a great org that um, highlights that struggle and tries to get people out is this a uh, step also related to defunding the police, because if we funded social services, if we better funded those things that keep us housed and fed and clothed, um, that's part of removing funding from police, right? Mm -hmm. Police budgets are so bloated. They're in the billions. Often police are getting so much money in overtime. They're getting new cars all the time. There's all of this technology and there's so much money that we could be spending on people actually getting access to what they need. And instead, we're paying for them to get arrested, beat up, killed, locked up. And often even those people who support police unconditionally are surprised when they find out how much of their own city's budget goes to police. There are some cities where a full third of the entire city mm -hmm. budget goes into policing and uh, right. everybody else has to fight over the scraps. Um, so then let's keep going. We've got uh, number six in the eight step plan is invest in community self-governance. What does this mean, self-governance? So this is, to be very clear, not the same as community policing. Community policing is just repackaged policing. Community self-governance is when People who live in the community are the ones making decisions about their own communities. So rather than 
bigger governmental offices deciding like what the social services are that a community needs. They're people who actually live in the communities who would benefit from those things, who are deciding those things. They can be tenant unions, street vendors, anything like that, but it's people who are actually being affected by the issues of the community who are deciding what they need to make their community better. Um, and there's also like trainings that can go on and making sure that people know that their community is who has their back. And if there is a problem, an emergency, that they can rely on the people who they live around and who they create these relationships with. Are there examples of this that you can point to? Yeah, I would say that something that was a huge example of this was um, at the start of the pandemic when people were out of work and we weren't quite sure yet if there was going to be these checks coming in, um, the eviction standstills weren't go going through or landlords were not um, abiding by them, a huge amount of new tenant unions came up. And um, in these communities, they might be like, I live in Brooklyn. So there was like the Crown Heights Tenant Union or the Bed-Stuy um, Tenants Union. And they were finding lawyers, making sure that everybody in the area knew their rights, making sure people weren't getting evicted, um, helping with rent reductions for people who aren't working. And this was like a very community-centric effort to ensure that people were remaining housed. And it was like by the community for the community. Okay, so uh, we're uh, almost uh, there. Step seven and the eighth step plan is provide safe housing for everyone. Why is housing so essential? You know, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a menu of things that everybody needs, uh, food and education, but you, you narrow uh, it down to housing. Yeah, it definitely, of course, like people need food and education and a lot of other things to survive and thrive. But it is extremely difficult to do anything if you do not have safe and secure housing. Um, another reason for for choosing this one is that people who are unhoused are targeted by the police in a huge way. There are all these sweeps. There are people who... Um, get arrested for using drugs in public or for public urination or things like that when what are they supposed to do if they don't have a home um and there's a lot of like requirements for people to get um housing that are unrealistic for people who um, might be struggling with drug addiction or who have um, certain mental health issues and if we just provided safe housing for everyone we could cut out so many of the other issues and people have a lot more opportunity to thrive and feel safe if they're not figuring out where they're going to sleep every night. And in many ways, this uh, this links up with uh, step five, repealing laws that criminalize survival. Um, we see the continual criminalization of the unhoused in cities in cities often run by supposedly liberal leaders, mayors, et cetera. Yeah. Um, even with liberal DAs, you see this over mm -hmm. and over again, even liberal so-called police um, chiefs will often engage in these criminal sweeps. Here in Los Angeles, we're sort of gearing up for the Olympics and, and you know, we'll see what Mayor Karen Bass, who says she wants to tackle homelessness in a progressive way, what she'll actually do. So finally, step eight in the eight step plan, invest in care, not cops. Again, I imagine very much related to some of the previous steps that we've talked about. Is this, why is this the final step in the eight to abolition 
plan? I think that it kind of like brackets the whole thing. So if the first part is to defund the police, then this is like what we're funding. Um, and there are so many things that are underfunded in our communities that people really need public transport, um, mental health care that is not coercive. There's um, honestly a lot of mental health care that is provided to people is almost the same as um, incarceration because people are being held against their will and um, required to go to these things, whereas there are other options that we could be giving people. Um, and we need so many things in our communities. We could have community fridges. We could have more food banks. F public transport could be free. Education could all be free. And we are just not funding any of these things because policing and prisons cost so much money. Um, and if we weren't putting so much money there, the taxes that we're paying could go towards making people safe and secure in a way that's actually meaningful. Reina, where um, has this eight to abolition, eight step plan, you know, uh, where's it gained traction? You mentioned it went viral in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, here we are in 2023. You know, is, is it getting traction? I would say that in 2020, the the biggest thing that this did was political education. Um, I think a lot of people who had not yet heard of prison abolition or police abolition um, came to understand what it was about through this intervention. We never intended it to be something that was like the end all be all of abolition. We just wanted people to understand that there was another option if we dared to imagine it. Um, what I think I did not anticipate, and I, I don't know if my other co-creators felt this way, but I did not anticipate the the turnaround from government officials who had previously said that they were interested in um in eliminating some budget from policing and then turning around and becoming very pro-police. I think that the politicians that we have right now have become very law and order um more budget for police and it feels like a direct response to the fact that people actually wanted police to be defunded actually wanted people to be freed from jails and prisons and that was such a threat to the status quo that even like alleged liberals were like no 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 we're going to make sure that we quell this and that's what I think we're seeing right now. I think the reason why it seems very hush-hush is because people want to maintain the order that has been for the past decades. And it's hard to imagine change when you've only known this way of living, but it, abolitionists are still making noise. We're still talking about this. We're still pushing for these changes. Um, and we will continue to do so until something changes. But I do agree that it, it seems like this type of messaging has been stifled and um, people in power are very much trying to ensure that defunding the police does not happen. Um, I never imagined I would hear President Biden say the words defund police, um, but he did to make sure we knew he didn't want to do that. Mm. 
Reyna, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the website is uh, pretty easy, right? 82abolition.com, and that's the number 82abolition.com. Thank you so much, Reyna. Thank you. My guest has been Reyna Sultan. She is Associate Editorial Director at the New Zet and co-creator of Hashtag 8 to Abolition. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.